Hello and welcome to the Arrow Video Podcast with Sam and Dan. My name is Dan Martin, a special effects artist and podcaster, and I am joined, as ever, by my lovely co-host. Sam Ashurst, and I am a screenwriter, I am a director, and I am a podcast man. Uh, the podcast man, you might say. But no, that is Dan. I'm rambling. I'm rambling. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, we've, we've Stick just, with it. It's good. We just recorded 12 Monkeys and now we're going straight into Candyman. Oh, yeah. You don't need to know that. But, That's um, fine. Be know, behind the curtain. Behind the curtain. So, uh, Dan, Hello. what are we talking about this week? Uh, we're talking about Candyman. We're yeah. talking about Candyman. Candyman, One of the... Candyman, Candyman, Candyman. <laughs> Candyman, 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 Candyman. One of the nice. greatest films ever Just made. Just a wonderful movie. Yeah. I love it so much. I was delirious with excitement that we were doing this. Yeah, seriously. It's when I, when I heard the Arrow were going to be releasing it. Um, I heard about it quite a long time ago and it was one of the most exciting moments yeah. ever and they have exceeded my expectations. I, I honestly think that this is one of the greatest Blu-rays Arrow has ever released. It's such an amazing it's a package. Great, it's a great disc. Yeah. It's a great set. Yeah, it really is. It really so, is. What's Candyman about, Dan? Uh, Candyman is about an undergraduate student with a point of proof uh, against her husband's bell-end colleague and who therefore puts herself in harm's way investigating <laughs> an urban legend that may have more truth to it than she initially realises. Oh, <laughs> I mean, it's almost like you'd written that down. That was excellent. <laughs> and uh, dear sweet listener, dear Arrowhead, um, uh, confession time uh from me uh i i cheated on this podcast i i went across to the evolution of horror podcast um earlier this year i think i, I yeah who knows yeah. and i did uh, an hour and 23 minutes on Candyman man evolution of horror so i feel like um and it's honestly one of the best things I've ever done. Like, uh, no <laughs> it's offense. A good, it's a very, very good episode. <laughs> yeah, and it's not, no, I don't mean that in that it's better than the Arrow podcast, uh, dear listener. Uh, I would never say that, um, but I'm, I'm proud of that episode over at Evolution of Horror. So it means basically that I've said that all I can possibly say uh, from my own perspective. So what I'm going to do is ask for, for, you know, the first time in my experience, <laughs> I'm going to ask Dan to speak <laughs> at the expense of myself. I definitely need encouraging though, because I'm nothing if <laughs> not a shrinking violet when it comes <laughs> to just outpouring my opinions at people and i very much want to hear the, these opinions so uh, how do you feel about Candyman? I, I mean i love i love candy man i first watched it when i was i'm going to say 12 mm -hmm. i was at boarding school at the time and i was able to buy 18s for some reason 18 rated films on vhs from the uh the shop in petersfield that i think it was like a wh smith's or something like that and they had Candyman. I'd not seen it before. My friend Simon and I would occasionally go to his father's house in Henley over the weekend when his dad was away. So we'd have the house to ourselves so we could drink and be irresponsible. And uh, we had uh, we took the VHS of Candyman as yet unwatched with us. And we watched it on his father's big telly, big old cathode ray tube telly mm. uh, in a room. The wall of which behind the television was a giant mirror. <laughs> <laughs> I fell in love with that movie. It is absolutely fantastic. It was one that I sort of, um, I'd make other people watch on the, you know, pretty regularly. And at that age as well. So, you know, most of the others didn't have access or a lot of the others didn't have access to that. We'd, um, we'd break into the AV room in the middle of night at school, sort of get out the dorms and go down to the, 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 there was an AV room in the building that was the boys' dormitories. And so down on the ground floor, if you went down and you sort of, if you did a bit of preparation during the day, you could make it so that you were able to get into the right. AV room. Yeah, we weren't yeah, like yeah. crowbarring locks, but... Yeah, but leaving Yeah, you could leave things ajar. Yeah, and yeah, that yeah. Kind of and yeah, and so we'd go in, and that was how I watched so many horror films, was mm. late at night breaking into the AV, AV club room. Uh, I watched It that way on over two nights, so you can imagine my disappointments on the second night. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Candyman was one of the most, just, it's such a good film. Uh, everything about every it, because it's, it's, it's a high art horror film. Yeah. There's nothing that isn't, I mean, there are some things about it that aren't super classy, but they are deliberately so. Yeah. Like, it is, yeah, it's just a fantastic movie. Yeah, and, and there's something really sort of special about it that... Um, it just makes it so unique because it, it has the appeal of 
you know, we, I mean, we talk about Grindhouse meets Art House all the time on this podcast, but it is a very true example of that because the premise is amazing. Um, it's it's kind of up there with uh, Ringu and it's up there with Nightmare on Elm Street in terms of a kind of premise that can affect you in the real world, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's. I think what's interesting and what separates it from those is that it's n- like the actual premise is a lot, subtler than either of those examples mm-hmm. like it's and it was it was interesting i re-watched it with um a friend of mine will uh who you you've met sam will is a uh, is an artist with a background in architecture and it was his first time watching it and it was really interesting because his take was so different from mine. he loved it mm. but his take was so different from mine about sort of what it all meant and what was going on and it was i think it was the first time i'd ever realized that there was that level of ambiguity there so confident i've been in my reading Mm. And we we talked at length about um, how much of it's real and how much of it isn't real. I think it's um, yeah. There's a it's a very very intelligent film. Now I, I it, it is very much so. Um, but I just want to clarify what I mean by the premise. I just mean literally what everybody knows about Candyman. Like if yeah. you haven't seen it, um, you know it's about it was there in the advertising and so on. You know if you say his name this number of times in the mirror, he comes and gets you. And really that premise is kind of done away with well, after the yeah. opening scene. And, and what it's actually you know one of the things that it's actually about is and it's there in the original story as well, it's it's this concept of urban myths. Mm. And I just love the fact that the film itself is an urban myth in that people have the basics of the story yeah. and repeat it and bring it into the real world. And, you know, I know many people who haven't seen the movie who have done the Candyman thing in the mirror. Yeah, it's quite amazing. Quite yeah, an amazing film. It is a wonderful movie. It's uh, But the other thing is that without being heavy-handed, it deals with a lot of other big like real world issues or it tackles a lot of other big real world issues and it feels as pertinent and as relevant today as it did back in 1992 100% because yeah it's um 93 yeah, yeah. no i think it's 92, it 92? yeah i'm yeah. sure it's 92 um and this is my mutant power so yeah. trust yeah, me yeah, yeah. but yeah it is it has so much to say about um race it has so much to say about um marginalized people yeah so, and, so, yeah something i'd never noticed or had never occurred to me which will pointed out was that helen is because helen is constantly smoking throughout the film yeah and although you do see other characters smoke occasionally helen is the only one who's really like a chimney all the yeah, way yeah, through yeah yeah tobacco was a slave crop oh uh, yeah 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 so she is in the same way that she's sort of helping herself to their culture for her dissertation which is for higher education which was a sort of a, a, well education at all was a white privilege for a long time in the states um access to the money that's required to go to secondary education in america is is very much a sort of a a, a wealth privilege um and she's visiting these rundown areas Candyman's backstory is that he's the son of a slave like it's all tied into America's dirty past and the continued separation of America that pretends like it's all done all done well now like oh yeah no we're past all that but then at every moment in that film that divide is is highlighted this is it I'm going to mention a couple of things now that I did talk about on the the other podcast but I feel that you know they're they're relevant to this conversation two things one that it's very interesting that you know, it is very much about America's past, as you say, and, you know, America's dirty past does involve the creation of the projects. So obviously yeah. the, the the plot of Candyman goes way further back, but it's interesting that this is a slasher movie that doesn't take place in suburbia, which is where they traditionally take place. It does take place in those projects, um, which are part of that, that dirty past that the, the plot ties into. Also, there's a very interesting real-world thing, which I have no idea if it inspired the writing of the movie or or, or even the casting, um, but it's just something that I stumbled over separately. In the 70s, there was a, a female mayor of Chicago, 
And in order to kind of prove that she was kind of cleaning up the project areas, um, she decided to move into Cabrini Green um, really? and live there with her husband. And she basically lasted about three weeks before she was like, yeah, no, fuck this, I'm, I'm off. But if you look at images of this woman, she basically looks very similar to Virginia uh, Madsen, specifically the way that Helen has been styled. So, yeah, so so there's a lot of... there's. This is a very rich film and, and there's a lot of really interesting foreshadowing. You know, there's the Guy Fawkes mask uh, hanging up by Helen's mirror that, you know, obviously ties to the big bonfire effigy thing at the end, um, which also, I think, ties back to the original story as well. Yeah, well, it is, a, it is a bonfire night it bonfire is, yeah. in the original, but obviously they don't really do that in America, so it's just a fire. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> just a big old fire. And I would very much like to go on a deep dive now into one of the extras on this disc. Um, speaking of Clive Barker, uh, were you able to watch the interview with Clive Barker? Yeah, it's that's fantastic, on, on, the, on the director's cut disc. Yeah. Or, or the, the yeah, extended... I think it's on the theatrical, but anyway. It's it's the the only extra on the second disc. Right, yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah. So now uh, my friend and collaborator, Heather Buckley, conducted this interview. She's not on camera, but um, and she also produced this disc. Um, She produced that extra, did the interview, and there's another interview on the disc that she's done that we'll talk about later. But in the extra features, I talked to Heather about this, but uh, about this interview and a couple of other bits. But... You know, because I know Heather, this might be insight that's only sort of enjoyable to me, but (laughs) that whole interview with Barker feels like he's talking, not just talking to her, but he's talking for her, if that makes sense. Heather is someone who loves monsters, who who grew up loving monsters and um, feels a real affinity for monsters and wants to create them for other people to enjoy and to you know, I, I think make people who feel like outsiders feel like they're less on the margins of society. And that's what this interview is about in a lot of places. Like the stuff he says about monsters and being drawn to darkness, you know, the stuff he says about being um, being an outsider. And, and there's, a, there's even a moment where um, he talks, he describes doing something, which I won't spoil here because it's such an amazing reveal. But there's a thing, he talks about doing something that people would find disgusting and, and react to him in a negative way. And he says to Heather, I don't think you would. And then, <laughs> you know, carries on telling the story. And so, you know, Heather's my friend. So, and, and I do interviews myself. So to kind of see that, I think that's actually what makes the best kind of interview where, you know, the subject is really talking to you and it feels like we're yeah. listening in basically on a conversation between friends. Because that's when you get away from the press kit being said out loud. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, God. And it's the opposite of that, this yeah, interview. Like, absolutely. I've never seen Clive well, like this. Clive hasn't done a lot of interviews recently. Yeah, no, it's um, true. And so it's, it's, it's really great that he did, like, sort of come back to the back to the interview stand what's the word I don't yeah, know. yeah you know to do this it's it's such a great film and it's also one of the last films that's an adaptation of one of his works that he re- that he didn't direct himself that he really like signed off on that he yeah. really enjoyed he's an executive producer on it but but that could easily have just been because you know he was getting some money and that was part of the contract. Mm. But him and Bernard Rose, the director, knew each other. Mm. And Bernard was a, still a comparatively new director when he made this. Mm. But he had the script from Clive. Clive had given him the, the Forbidden, the story that it's based on, had given, had said he could use it and given him his blessing. And, um, and so now here was this relatively new director, relatively young director, with this amazing property this amazing mm. intellectual property and so obviously you know clive felt that bernard was the right guy to take it he, he gave him his blessing and he was mm. absolutely bang on it's an amazing pairing totally and like you know in that interview you know he, he talks a, a bit about canny man like he's kind of across his whole career and, and his life as well there's an incredibly moving moment towards the end of the interview where he's talking about his relationship with his father and it just there's so much insight but anyway um when he talks about canny man you know, there's a lot about the process there and he talks about his reaction to um, 
to when Bernard Rose said that he, he thinks he could get um, Philip Glass for the soundtrack. Yeah. And yeah, it's just, honestly, I, I, I know it's such an overused cliche where people say an extra is worth the price of the disc alone. But, but genuinely, like this 30-minute interview... I'm obsessed with it. I feel like I'm going to watch it once a week for the rest of my life. Like there's so much in it that I find so powerful and, and moving and, and real as well. It's such a, yeah. a unique interview. It's a very, very strong disc overall. The yeah. extras are great. The audio commentaries are very, very yeah. good. There's a great one with Stephen Jones and Kim Newman. And, yeah, that's um, fantastic. It, Both of whom knew Clive. Back yeah, the, like in back in the day, so that's a lived, really nice bit of insight. They kind of lived in the same area, and yeah. you know, they 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 talk about you know this kind of area of London. Is it Croydon? I can't remember, but anyway, an area of London. Crouch End. Crouch End, of course, it is because of the Stephen King mm. story. Crouch End, where uh, all of these sort of horror greats were making great things at the yeah. same time. Um, um, yeah, it's a it's a really it's a very kind of. It basically feels more like a conversation between friends. I mean, they do touch yeah, on again, what's going on on screen, but the, the same with with the, the other audio commentary, which is Bernard Rose and Tony Todd. Yeah, again, it's like it's nice because they're kind of having a catch up. And exactly. It's, yeah, yeah they're, they're, it's all really nice. It's a very loving disc. It really is, actually. Um, yeah, and given how much I love the film, that is appropriate. <laughs> totally. Um, I'm absolutely certain that no one has listened this far if they haven't seen the film. I'm close to certain. But just in case you have listen to this without having seen the film. Because actually, we don't think we've super spoiled it. No, like, we haven't. We've, we've no, talked no. about it, but we haven't. The, and there is a little thing I want to talk about that is a bit of a spoiler. But if you haven't seen it, I, I want you to recommend that you watch the American R-rated version first rather than the unrated version. Which version did you watch on the disc? Uh, I, I watched the R-rated version. You watched the R-rated yeah, version? Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I strongly recommend it. The differences are minimal. Yeah. And the director's cut is interesting from a completist point of view, but it's probably a matter of like two or three seconds, absolute mm. tops. Mm. But what's what the main, the main thing is that the stock changes dramatically mm. before anything that's longer, and it works to massively draw your attention to the fact that there's about to be a murder. Yeah, because you go, oh, it's changed. There's going to be a murder. Yeah, yeah. I know that now we're getting an extra feature. Yeah, we're yeah, getting yeah. An extra bit of footage, um, and they're not long enough that it. So you're saying watch the theatrical version first? No, I'm saying watch the watch the R-rated oh, right, version. Okay. The, the, okay, so it's slightly different because they are both the theatrical version. Yeah, yeah, It's just yeah. that the longer one is the English theatrical version, yeah, yeah. which is a few seconds longer. Right, got it. And the um, American R-rated theatrical version is the other one. Right. I don't even know. The differences are so little that I don't know which one I've seen millions of times. All I know is that because I, I had to watch both because I watched the uncut version... And then I watched the cut version twice with audio commentaries on. Mm. So I've seen both and I've still now, like maybe a little, like a blood squirt here, yeah. a splash there. Yeah, yeah. But stuff I was expecting, because I assumed, oh, well, I've seen the uncut version. I watched it. I thought when I go and watch the, the R-rated version, it was going to be a big difference. And I, there were a bunch of shots that I thought wouldn't be in it. Mm. But they were, they were in it. So it doesn't, yeah, there's not enough of a difference that it's, it's worth satellite uh, yeah. like sort of telegraphing the presence of the of big moments and to yourself if you haven't seen it before and obviously this is one of the you know arrow tends to bring a lot of stuff to blu-ray for the first time yeah. however Candyman has been available on blu-ray before so any thank you blu-ray moments i, I would have had I've, i had when i and there is stuff in there that i only saw for the first time on blu-ray like a couple of lines that yeah, yeah there's 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 a line <laughs> yeah um but um but, but that's it because there's no cgi no exactly in the whole film there's exactly. no cgi exactly which is incredible there's some optical effects yeah uh the bees at the beginning of the skyline being iron yeah, filings yeah. which i yeah. didn't know that's great yeah yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really great and and that's that's kind of uh, what i wanted to go on to is the fact that so it may have been on blu-ray before but part of the reason this disc is so exciting is it's a brand new audio commentary from uh bernard rose and tony todd the stephen jones and kim newman commentary is new. brand new um yeah, there's a new interview with tony todd which is yeah very lovely and you know yeah it's just a lovely interview Brand new interview with Virginia Madsen, which is also she great. She is fantastic. She in that is fantastic, interview. and yeah, just you just want to be a mate, don't you? And yeah, all this stuff about the hypnosis. Yeah, um, I'd, I'd not heard any of that I, before. Me either. Yeah. So, um, 
yeah, it's I've like, just thought of another based on recommendation based on that, but I'm not going to change. Amazing. Well, we won't go into it because you, you can watch it on the disc. Brand new makeup effects. Uh, yeah. Interviews. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, an interview with Douglas E. Winter, which is more about the books and, and, and the yeah. forbidden because he's a writer himself. But uh, that's another interview that Heather conducted. And in a similar way to the Barker interview, it has moments where you're like, holy fuck, how did, how did you get this? Like how, you know, he opens up, especially towards the end. And yeah, yeah I, there's very, a, very in the interview I do with Heather that's coming up in uh, Extra Features, uh, there is a little bit of behind the scenes of that moment. So yeah, you won't have to wait long for that because we're going to shut up soon. I have but, a question for you. Yeah. Uh, and it's a spoiler. Right, so, brace yourselves. Two minutes, maybe. One and a half, two minutes, if you want to jump ahead, if you haven't seen it. If you haven't seen it, though, just yeah. stop this podcast and go, and go and, and watch it. Watch yeah, it, literally, plan. and then come back. Well, they've stopped it now. They, haven't, they can't hear that. Oh, God. <laughs> um, Hello again. So, Virginia, Virginia Madsen, yes. uh, in the hypnotised shots, yes. which I didn't know were hypnotised when I thought when I first started thinking about this, but in her close-up being emotionally overwhelmed by the presence of Candyman shots, mm-hmm. uh, she's all wet-eyed and, and sort of dreamy-faced, mm. but she's shot like a... Like a sort of Val Luton character. She's yeah. lit with the, the light across the eyes. Yeah. Later on, the young student in the scene at the end, yeah. when the camera pushes in on her screaming right at the end of the film, yeah. she's lit mm. like a late 80s, early 90s horror character. Right. Do you think that there was, to some degree, the idea that these things cycle and repeat was working there by referencing that there's this sort of like grand tradition of character horror represented by Luton and that old style of filming. And then as that passes away and the new thing happens, you've got the 80s and 90s aesthetic as the the new screaming damsel in distress comes onto the scene. I love that as a theory. Um, I really do. However, I feel it is a bit simpler in that um, Bernard Rose kind of saw Candyman himself as being a figure like Dracula. Yeah. Um, he basically sees like him as being... Her. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And having kind of similar powers. So I think it's more connected to that. However, you know, I do like the cycle continues stuff because at the end when we join that that female character, the, the student, it's very much like she's kind of... Like a lot of, you know, when older people have relationships with uh, people too younger for them, mm. they often sort of make them or require them to be more mature than they are because these people are often baby men and need looking after. Um, so she has basically become the new Helen and is, you know, throwing the state down. She has to cook it. She seems resentful. And, you know, he's realising that, oh, fuck, you know, I shouldn't have replaced her with a newer model. Actually, what me and Helen had was pretty good. Yeah. Um, if he buys, If he thinks that she really killed those people, which there's no reason to think he doesn't think... Dan, we get a flashback yeah. where he, he sat there thinking about her and we get flashbacks to their happy days together. Oh, yeah. Like, and, and definitely, when he's saying, he, he definitely misses what went before. Yeah, yeah. But that's I don't what think he feels like it was... He shouldn't have, like... That he, like no, I do, because um, she, the, the student is kind of being... She's not the new Helen. She's throwing the stuff down yeah. and she's being... And but, he's but remembering... But Helen isn't available anymore. No, well, she's in the, isn't in the, she? She's in the booby hatch. Helen, Helen. Oh, no, no. Okay, so we're talking about different moments in the film. I'm talking about right at the end. Yeah. Where, um, she's not in the booby hatch. She's, oh, no, she's dead. She's dead. She's dead. But, but that's what I mean. He, but he's either, literally saying that. He's sitting there going, oh, Helen, 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 Helen. But but no, so yeah, sorry. She's not in the thing. She's, she's dead. But, the, but what I'm saying is he doesn't have the option of being with her. Yes, he's missing her, but it's not like he's saying, oh, I shouldn't have thrown it all away. Yeah, no, Because he, is. he thinks he's, she's a killer yeah, and yeah. then a dead person. So, yeah. Uh, anyway. I, I, think he's regret, I think he's regretful that the whole thing went down the way it went down. Yeah. And, and maybe if, you know... He paid he, a bit he, more attention and hadn't been banging a student earlier. Exactly. Uh, maybe yeah. if he'd have looked after her when she came back from the police instead of saying, oh, I've left some folders at the office, I'm promise I'm not going to go bang some student. Yeah, it's interesting because we're actually never explicitly shown that he was cheating on her. That Mm -hmm. is an assumption that we are allowed to make. Certainly, Rose puts it there for us to to make if we want, but it's never confirmed or denied. Well, I... We never know for sure that he did. 
I, I I have to say I do feel like this is one of those films where you you're not sure the first time, but then you watch it the second time. Like if you watch how she reacts to Helen straight away, oh like, absolutely, the, the, yeah. Well, she's the only one to shake Helen's hand. It's a weird little and, power and play, the, and the body language and the way she looks yeah. at her and the way she leaves, like I yeah. But that could all be that she fancies the professor, not that she is actually sleeping with the professor. I and mean, if you look at the age difference between Helen and um, and him as well. Yeah. Like there's a possibility that she met him when she was a student. Oh yeah, absolutely. And now she's finishing. Uh, like, absolutely. It works quite quickly because they're married, but... And then we go back to the cyclical nature yeah, that started exactly. this conversation and we, I think that's the end of the spoilers. Yeah, well, no, that was definitely more than a minute <laughs> and a half. <laughs> but right, should we, should we kind of wrap this up? Do we have more to say on this? Is Candyman real? Is Candyman real? Yes, he is. In the film? Yes. He's real? Yes. It's not all imagined? 100%, yeah. Um, the turning point there is at the midpoint, which is uh, when she's um, with the psychiatrist guy who gets gutted. There's just no way she could have done that on her own. And she, I think she's tied up as well, isn't she? She is tied up, yeah. and then Candyman undoes her restraint. There you go. What's interesting is that, although, they, although Rose does acknowledge that that's the only time that Candyman interacts with the real world, like, other than for murder... Mm. To, to, to lift those, uh, to take those restraints off. He seems a lot less convinced than I was, than I really am still, just for, to play devil's advocate. He seems a lot less convinced than I was that Candyman is definitely real. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's... It's very interesting it's, hearing him... It's, it, to a certain, it's there to a certain extent, yeah. but that scene... It just breaks everything. Like, I, I can understand if, if, you know, I'm sure Rose did want to make it ambiguous, but that scene, it's just not ambiguous. There's not, just yeah. literally no, no physical I, I definitely, way. No, I, I agree with you. I'm like, yeah, I, I think he's real. Yeah, he's definitely real. Good old Candyman. Good old Candyman. Um, uh, but, and he, he's going to be real again soon. Um, yeah. Because uh, a remake has been announced, directed by Get Out director Jordan Peele. How do you feel about that? I'm excited. I think that's good. Yeah. Um, I'm not one of these people who automatically dismisses the idea of a remake. No, me either. I think they're often not particularly necessary, but doesn't stop you having the old film. And if anything, I mean... Not in this case, because it's already got an amazing Blu-ray. But sometimes when an old film gets remade, it means that you then get a nice re reissued remaster of the of the original. Yeah, and um, when Dan and I... Goes back to it. When Dan and I used to live together, we went through a period of watching remakes back-to-back -back with the original. Do you remember when yeah. we went through that brief period? And that's, it's actually pretty fun. It's and, quite nice. You know, it seems to be the trend that, that people make remakes that are very different to the original... Um, especially with Suspiria, um, yeah. which is... I've not seen it. Just, it's just very, so very barely connected to the original. Um, if you gave it a different title, no one would notice. But yeah... Uh, I don't know, once the conversation about stealing other people's art came up, someone might point out it had some similarities to Suspiria. Oh, <laughs> shit. You just, yeah, no, I, I, I found that quite amazing, and I, I hope that that artist gets, you know, every every scent that's coming to them because it's the same. It's not just similar, it's the same. Yeah. Um, here's an extra feature for the 12 Monkeys episode, which I forgot to mention earlier. If you're a 12 Monkeys fan, seek out the, the, the art piece... Uh, Neo Mechanical Tower Upper Chamber because the artist uh, behind that successfully sued Universal and won some money because really? uh, it's so similar to the production design. I'm going to show it to Dan. Uh, you're going to have to Google it, dear sweet listener, dear Arrowhead. Um, I'm sorry that you're not in the room with us, but yes. Holy wow. Okay, so here's a thing. No, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's just no getting away from That's it. That's astonishing, it's, uh, isn't it? Yeah. I, I remembered uh, that when I was watching the commentary, it's around that bit that Gilliam was talking about finding spaces and yes. making them work. And my brain did a stupid thing and went, but didn't Gilliam find that chair that went up? All no, no, he didn't. <laughs> uh, obviously he fucking didn't. Why would that exist? <laughs> um, and before we move on to recommendations, I would like to pick up a narrative thread uh, that's been running uh, throughout these podcasts since uh, we covered uh, Hellraiser 3. Yeah. 
On that episode, I asked Dan to do an impression of Pinhead and the Wishmaster, and he did neither because we both forgot about it. But now I've remembered about it. So, um, Dan, could you hit us with your best Pinhead, seeing as it is a, a Clive Barker movie that we're covering? Uh, okay, but um, if there's nothing here, it's because uh, when I listened back to it, I asked Mike to cut it out. <laughs> <laughs> I've just got Candyman voice in my head now. Uh, I mean, you could do that as well. You're a man of many voices. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like that's a They're voice all I'm not very similar. To do. And they are all similar voices. <laughs> I'll do I'm going to start with Wishmaster. Okay. Cuz that's that's different enough that I can just drop into Wishmaster. As you wish. I mean, that's good. That's it's, good. It's uh, it's a bit too growly. I've not done it for ages. As you <clears throat> fuck it. Stick <laughs> stick with the first one. Pinhead what I've, I've just <laughs> what I've got in my head is my father shouting at me when I accidentally set the living room on fire at I Christmas mean, one year. My father, uncharacteristically, just shouted "boy" at me <laughs> across the room when I when I started accidentally spread fire across the living room. <laughs> and in my head, that voice has now become Candyman's I voice. I can't imagine. I can't imagine your dad. Boy, amazing. It's a bit more Angus Scrim, isn't it? Um. Yeah. What? Uh, what? What line? What line do you want? What? What pinhead? pinhead. Line? Um. I'll tear your soul apart. We'll tear your soul apart. That's amazing. That is Pinhead. I'm glad we. Uh, I'm glad we ended that, that narrative. Thread. <laughs> uh, recommendations, Dan. Why don't you start Hellraiser? Uh, right, so my first recommendation off the back of, of Candyman is Bernard Rose's uh, horror debut, Paper House. I stumbled across Paper House on TV when I was quite young and absolutely loved it. Um, and then I didn't see it again for years. Um, I watched it again uh, probably about four or five years ago because I suddenly remembered it and wanted to show it to my wife as, a, as an example of like nice slightly small british horror and i don't think i realized it was the same director as candyman at the time it's it's very different because it's rural and it's british but it does play around with dreams and reality and and that kind of stuff and it's it's just a really good sort of like semi-haunted house picture it's not even a, it's not a haunted house it's about a, ch a sickly child who discovers that things they draw can be made manifest mm. which is quite a clive barkery kind of tale oh it is yeah yeah um, so it makes sense that they knew each other yeah but yeah if you if you haven't seen it track it down it's um oh i love it it's great and if you're interested in uh bernard rose's past uh, there's some of his early short films on this disc as well oh yeah and they're fantastic. definitely worth yeah, yeah, watching well worth and, a look. you know he he started relatively young and like did did some shorts for the bbc when when they were funding that stuff and um yeah no his shorts are really interesting Right, I will recommend my first one off the back of Candyman, and that is a film called The Skeleton Key from 2005. Now, nice. it is a, a slightly unusual choice, but I do think that um, even though it's a modern one, it is relatively underseen, uh, possibly because it looks a bit shit, but um, it's not a bit shit. It's actually really good. Uh, it's a, a great script, and I don't want to say too much about it, but when you watch it, you will see the influence on a, uh, a more modern horror film that everybody felt was very original. However, they share the very same twist, which I'm not going to mention what the film... Very it's close, very close. Very, very, very close. close. I mean, yeah, the, the modern film does something very different with it, and the modern film's great and, um, and, and all that. But when you watch The Skeleton Key, you will think of another film um and i don't want to say any more I than that i want to rewatch it now but it's I've not relevant. Made that connection but oh my god i've, I've not seen it for years we'll, we'll talk about it off the yeah, mic yeah, yeah. but um but yeah it's, it's it's a new orleans set isn't it or sort of like louisiana yeah so it's 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 basically about a, a nurse working in a, a in a new orleans plantation yeah. home um 
who uh, gets modern in, day though. Yeah, modern day, but um, there's there's stuff. There's some dark past stuff in yeah. there that kind of ties it with Candyman as well. And there's another way it ties with Candyman, but you have to wait and see what that is. I've said too much. Dan, what is your next recommendation? Uh, my next recommendation is a film by another British director. Uh, this is Peter Greenaway, and it's his film, The Draftsman's Contract. It is on the surface incredibly different from Candyman. It's a period drama. Uh, slash murder mystery. It's uh, one of my favourite of Greenaway's pictures. It's incredible and very stagey and theatrical. Uh, it has an amazing soundtrack by Michael Nyman, who does most of, if not all of, uh, Greenaway's soundtracks. And I think Nyman and Glass are kind of there's a lot to there's a lot to connect those two musically. Uh, but it's actually because the the goings on in uh, the narrative goings on in Draftsman's Contract feel like they are slightly connected to uh, Candyman's backstory. Oh, okay. It's essentially about a, um, a draftsman who is hired by a wealthy family to come and do a section, a, a selection of drawings of their home. And he is, he's a very prized draftsman and he insists, he, he draws everything exactly as it is. He does slice of life stuff. So if there's a bit of damage to a wall, he includes it. If there's washing hanging out on a line, he includes it, which is not the, the style of the time. And in doing so, he accidentally catches a clue to a murder in one of his drawings mm. and gets embroiled that way. It's full of petty squabbles and uh, small politics in the way that costume dramas often are. It's a fantastic movie. I think, yeah, one of the most interesting things about Candyman for me is the fact that Candyman was an artist and he's kind of, his kind of driving force isn't necessarily revenge, it's more legacy. He yeah. wants to be remembered. Yeah. And that kind of connection between urban myth and the legacy of an artist and how you can live forever as long as your name's being uttered, Yeah, I find really you interesting. You die twice, once when you die and once when the last person speaks your name. Exactly. And yeah. so, you know, he's created this kind of, yeah, um, nightmarish legacy. And also the fact that he's associated with bees um, who are considered the artists of the insect world. They create and they dance yeah. and all these things that may seem separate are actually very much unified in Candyman, which is kind of amazing. Anyway, I'm rambling again. No, I will recommend my next movie, which is Rosemary's Baby. Maybe my favourite horror film, I don't know. It's fucking incredible. And I just feel like there's something of the Rosemary's Baby in Trevor. You know, we, we touched on it earlier, but he's, you know... He's doing something else off camera, basically, in a very similar way to Guy in Rosemary's Baby. And, um, you know, I, I think that these films utterly deserve to be mentioned in the same breath. They are both um, art house masterpieces. Yeah two, yeah, two of the greatest horror films ever made, Rosemary's Baby and Candyman. So uh, if you haven't seen it, who knows? There are some uh, some young listeners to this podcast. Please watch that film from the late 60s. You will adore it. Dan, what is your first recommendation from the past couple of weeks? Uh, so my first recommendation... <laughs> I said that like a news Yeah, it was good. I liked it. <laughs> it makes me feel very professional. Yeah. Just by proxy. Always. Always. Uh, <laughs> finally, those promises paying dividends. My, it's, a, it's a TV series uh, from 1976. It's got a bunch of different directors, and I haven't actually seen every episode yet, but they're all standalone pieces. Mm -hmm. um, they're all, the, the thing that connects them is that they're all written by Nigel Neal, who's famous for having done Quotamass. Yeah. And it's called Beasts. Oh, yes, uh, of which course. Which I've yeah, never yeah. seen. Yeah. And it's fucking it, scary. Or, yeah, although it does occasionally let itself down with some pretty ropey special effects. <laughs> Its ability to build an atmosphere of oppressive tension yeah. is absolutely fantastic. Yeah. yeah, so this was recommended to me by a friend. Uh, I picked up the DVD. It's a two-disc set, six episodes, an hour long each. I picked it up online. wasn't particularly expensive, and it's just fantastic. So Great. Strongly recommend. Very good recommendation. Uh, my first recommendation, based on the past couple of weeks, is a film called Cam, C-A-M, presumably... Well, actually, I've got no idea when it's going to land, but um, it's going to be on Netflix at some point in the near future or the distant future, who knows. But it's a, a Blumhouse movie um, that, that Netflix picked up. And, yeah, it's uh, 
by a relatively new director, Daniel Goldhaber, uh, Danny to his friends. Uh, I met him at the London Film Festival and he's a very, very smart, nice guy. Um, and uh, I met him before I watched the movie and you always have the fear when you meet a nice director and they send you their film and you're like, oh, fucking hell, what if I don't like it? Because... I mean, some people are fine in this situation, but me, I cannot tell a lie. So I would just have to tell him I thought his film was shit. Thankfully, I didn't <laughs> think his film was shit. Hence me recommending, hence me recommending it on the podcast. I'll, I'll let you guys know when it's actually gone on to Netflix. But um, for now, be excited about Cam because it's a really interesting film. It's it's basically about uh, a Cam girl um, who who makes a lot of money from uh, tantalising internet people who pay her in tokens when she kind of does stuff that they want. And however, she has clear boundaries and um, she won't kind of step outside those boundaries. And with a film like this, I think the temptation could be to do it all in the internet and just have it, the story told, you know, through the, the cam site. Like open windows. Uh, yeah, exactly. But it moves outside of that in a really sort of it's very well directed, very um, beautifully performed film, um, and and the turn comes basically when uh, when this young woman is is locked out of her account, um, and someone who looks exactly like her is performing on the campsite instead of her, and she basically loses control. Ah, doppelganger um, horror. Doppelganger horror, um, which is one of my favourite subsections. And uh, another thing that, um, and obviously this doppelganger starts to sort of push through her boundaries and, you know, yeah, it's, it's in terms of her relationship with her family and, and um, you know, how she responds to this, this uh, situation, it's, it's a very gripping thriller, horror thriller. And uh, the other interesting element is that it's written by a young woman, uh, Isa uh, Maisie, I think it's how you pronounce her name. And she's a former sex worker and she basically saw horror as the best genre to channel her feelings about working in that environment. And so there are elements to this that feel very real and it actually feels like someone who's having a, a moment of catharsis working through some stuff. Nice. So yeah, it works on a, a, another level to just uh, kind of enjoyable and uh, intense horror film. So, um, well done, Danny. Your film is fucking great, and um, it's going on to Netflix. So you don't need me congratulating you because oh, um, yeah, you know of... your future is secured. <laughs> yeah, good stuff, Dan. What is your next? <laughs> well, so my next one's a recommend. Like I'm recommending the film, but I'm not recommending the version of the film. And so, really, this as much of a recommendation for our audience. And I think I've probably mentioned it before in passing. I, I, it's also a plea to Arrow. Because I don't know if it has a UK Blu-ray. We haven't done much um, of this recently. We should do more no. of this. Uh, it's Ruggiero Diodato's Cut and Run. Uh, yes, you've mentioned this before. I've definitely mentioned it before. Yeah. I feel that uh, uh, a certain other very successful film from recent years owes it a massive debt creatively. It's pretty sleazy. Uh, it's pretty fun. The uncut version has been a little elusive over the years. I still have a Japanese laser disc of it. The, um, which isn't great, and has hard burnt-in Japanese subtitles. Mm. Uh, the Anchor Bay, I think, DVD came out. Uh, was the first DVD of it with the extra feet with the extended sequences in. Um, and as soon as you've seen the extended sequences, you know exactly what film I'm saying. It owes it a debt. And there's a little uh, disclaimer on the back of the disc saying, you know. Eh, some bits are just in Italian, even though the film is largely in English, because just English language doesn't exist for those scenes. Mm. And so all the extended scenes are just in English. Right. Uh, just in Italian. Just in Italian, Italian yeah, yeah. But that's not true, because the Japanese disc, they're in English. So, you know, that was wrong. And then Code Red put it out on Blu-ray in the States. And I was like, yep, good, right, going to get it. So I picked it up from Diabolic in the States, who are the main American carrier for, mm. for Arrow's stuff over there. Uh, and they're where I get my... Mondo Macabro stuff mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. all that and they sent it through and I got it last week uh, and I put it in and it got to the to those scenes and they're still shitty quality nah. like the, the rest of the film's nice yeah, it's yeah. not particularly like it's not that much of an improvement on the DVD but but those scenes they're still and you know it's, it's you can only work with the format you've got but yeah. again it just like it changes ratio and it's bad it's just, the blacks are really saturated and it just doesn't look great so as fun as the film is 
and as much as I am recommending the movie, someone please hunt down an old interpositive or a or an uncut. The 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 thing I would say about um the code red disc that does make it worth picking up is that it has like Candyman, it has both the R rated and the unrated right. versions. But unlike Candyman, they are completely different films because and this happened a few times but um cut and run was the first film where i was aware of it happening the italians would be making these exploitation movies for two different markets and one market wanted an r-rated print america and europe wanted like a sort of a harder more extreme version and so they'd uh, they'd shoot their scene you know like they'd run into a, a an apartment in upstate new york and uh, and there's a guy lying on the couch and he's been shot in the head. There's like a little you know little bullet hole in his head and a little dribble of blood and there's some coke on the table in front of him. And they're like, God damn it, someone got to him before us. Uh, and then they go, Okay, cool, right, we've got that. We're happy with that. Okay, uh, cut that. Uh, yeah, let's uh, let's reset for the R rate for the unrated version. And they bring in like nine dead naked prostitutes and <laughs> a guy that had been sawn in half and blood all up the walls and everyone's been machine gunned and and then they just shoot the same scene. Yeah. So it they have like. The, the film is super different in those two versions. Yeah. It's really interesting seeing that that being a thing, that yeah, being yeah. a way of making movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, so this the what the Code Red disc does is it presents you with both of those. Cool. But I'm still, still. still waiting for someone to find a, a way of putting together a good print of the uncut version. Carmen Arrow, you can do it. My next recommendation is a film I've recommended before, I, I desperately want to say Mandy just to carry on that, <laughs> that running joke. And I do feel like, you know, um, by this point, I will have Mandy on Blu-ray. Uh, I've pre-ordered it. And so I will have it in my possession by the time this goes up. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to watch it every week for the rest of my life. However, <laughs> however, the film I'm recommending that I've recommended before is a film called Crowhurst. Now, I'm recommending it again for two reasons. One, uh it's almost certainly going to be my film of the year. I don't see it changing at this point. But secondly, it is now available for free on Amazon Prime if you're in the UK. And yeah, if, if ever there was a reason to watch it, it's because it's free. Yeah. Um, and honestly, please, dear Arrowheads, trust me, it is a masterpiece. The way I describe it is it's the, the accidental perfect Brexit movie, though I feel that that puts people off more than uh, than actually convinces <laughs> them to watch it but it's basically about a, a patriotic man who sets out to do something foolish and uh, suffers the consequences and sticks with it despite yeah. it being an idiotic choice with occasionally um everyone singing patriotic songs so um yeah i i heartily recommend crowhurst um it contains easily my best central performance of the year um from justin salinger and if you know how much i love mandy and nicholas cage in that film that is a high compliment so yeah please do watch crowhurst it is a fucking masterpiece and um tweet me when you've watched it and because uh, i'm desperate to have a conversation with with people about it because <laughs> not enough people have watched it and it's fucking great so dan Next for you, based on the past couple of weeks, or is that? No, we've done. We've done it all. We've done two. Do you want? Right. Do, do you want another one that I didn't like? Uh, yeah, cool. <laughs> no, no, we don't I'll, do that. I'll, on I'll this. do it. We don't do that on this podcast. It's a, it's, it's, it's a terrible film that's fun to watch in a group. Okay, is go that? on, go on. Yeah, why not? So it's from 2011. Bonus, bonus. Uh, and it's called Rat Scratch Fever. Right. Have you heard about this? No. Okay, so Rat Scratch Fever was made for pennies. The filmmakers, I don't know if the director did it himself or if he had someone else do it, but it's all shot against miniatures hmm. with compositing. So they'll shoot, like, they'll make a eight foot by four foot panel of a spaceship hmm. and they'll shoot the actors against that. And then they'll shoot the miniature corridors and whatever and they'll oh, just composite them into it and it's um and it's about crazy mutant rats that attack people on a space mission and then accidentally uh get brought back to earth the special effects are not good <laughs> at all in fact nothing about the film is particularly good the director as far as i can tell has mostly just made like soft core giantess erotica other than right. this because he's got access to a lot of miniature buildings <laughs> <laughs> makes sense but the 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 sheer scale of what they have done for no money is is quite astonishing because there isn't a shot in the film without an effect in it of some kind oh wow yeah um the the the, the number of angles they have as they're chased through the various sets it's just flabbergasting. I really want to see this now. I will be honest, I did not make it to the end. Oh. 
were, and and we were... watched the whole of Devil Ant, so that's yeah, something. Yeah, in fairness, I was filming the next day, so right, okay. it was like, you know what, this is I'm having fun with this, but I'm very tired, and I, I can't, I can't do this to myself. Fair. So yeah, so there, there you go. Rat Scratch Fever, I think it's like a, a pound on Amazon Prime. I love it. Right, I will be watching that. Okay, let us move on to Extra Features. Extra features. Extra features? Extra features. Oh, extra features. Now, uh, this week on Extra Features, you've got uh, a packed disc of yeah, stuff. Yeah, like the who, Candyman disc. Who shall go first? Uh, you go first. Yours yeah, because yeah. I, I talked about mine a bit um, to set it up. So I was lucky enough to get onto a Skype call with the producer of uh, the Candyman disc, uh, Heather Buckley, and here's what Heather had to say. Now, uh, I should warn you that... The quality isn't massively great on this. There's a couple of dropouts, but uh, you get the idea. And um, Heather has some amazing stuff to say. So here is Heather. And so um, let's talk about Candyman. The Clive Barker interview on that disc is one of the best interviews I've seen with anyone ever. I want to start a religion around that interview. Um, it's incredible. How did you get that interview and how did you get Clive to open up in that way? I think there was a lot of passionate people that wanted it to happen. Mm. I think sort of like a, a, it was a truly a gift. I reached out to his uh, his manager, Chris Rowe, hmm. and then there are other sort of parties involved. I think um, Tim Sullivan was incredibly excited about sort of pursuing it as well, and Johnny, uh, his his boyfriend, and all of us together sort of rallied around getting this piece done hmm. because we understood that it was very important specifically for the UK market, and the idea was to talk about his philosophy and his point of view in a broader way, focusing on his wisdom, on his in in incredible boundless wisdom. Yes. With the point of view of, of what we wanted to get through in the interview and went through the process back and forth of sort of like questions and research. And in the end, it's like with any great interview is just to have the, the person talk, mm. allow that to, to happen and not get it, get in the way. And to be in the presence of Clive Barker, I saw him when I was a little girl at the Weekend of Horrors, and I had a little Polaroid that I from the from the '90s of Clive back in the day, and then yes. we, and then uh, Sullivan uh, took a picture of us together, and I almost felt like when I look at that image, it's kind of like generation is of monsters. It's like he. And a, a lot of the folks that inspire me, it's like they create these sort of like monster children and creatures out in the world. And at some point we we come home to them to thank them. Yes, I love that. That's amazing. And um, how did it feel to be in that room? And like, obviously, you must have known that you were getting gold um, because there's just so much good stuff. Was it quite intense for you? How were you sort of able to stay in the present moment? I have interviewed folks for about 10 years, mm. and I think I have a natural ability to be radically present to someone. So I just wanted to make sure it's like the, our our camera, our, our camera was led by Henry, who was the producer and editor of Wolfman as Nards. Oh, cool. And, and he had his guy, Wes there, so it was a two-camera setup, so it was the established shot, and we, we shot in his bedroom with a beautiful, Clive's bedroom, and they had his beautiful artwork around, mm. and then we had, like, a sort of a three-fourths camera, and just making sure that that was beautiful. You know, I love I love my crew. They shot a lot of the, the Candyman disc for us, and I actually met them on a film fest run at Overlook Film Festival mm. and I said how much I love their work and I told them that you know I've worked with you know Mike Felsher and Severin Films and Kino and they were oh my god and Candyman was Henry's favorite film mm. so I had to oh, wow. shoot the interviews as possible and to edit the entire disc so those are those are those are all his edits and that's most of his photography on, on that disc with, with a few other sort of like mainstay DPs that I use all over the world. So when that was set up, the, the audio, Clive himself, is incredibly accommodating, incredibly funny. Mm. And I've, I've, of course, read his work for years, mm. but, but the kind of topics that he, he touched on, I didn't really see in any of the works that I've followed, followed by him. So I felt that it was just... 
it was just kind of like a magic moment where it was time to talk about sort of like being an outsider and monsters yes. and what that all means. And to me, that it's it, it's not it's for me, it's almost like a selfless act because it's in, it's important for me to that that these things happen hmm. to automatically make sure that the world gets exposure to it as inspired by these people that are incredibly important that are inspirational i love it and very exciting news uh with regards to the ranger the the movie you produced for jen wexler um that's coming to shudder soon isn't it um can you talk a bit about that so shutter uh shutter picked up the ranger exclusively and and in the year 2019 we're not sure about what sort of what quarter hmm. it's going to be out on SSVOD and we're super excited about it there's other sort of releasing patterns in the work but of course much like my DVD supplement producing hmm. you want to keep it a secret so when you announce crazy stuff that everyone is super excited so I don't like to, I don't like to tell people too much yes that that's that's the SVOD wing and I love the people at Shutter. Yeah. I know a lot of people that work at Shutter, sort of like Colin and and Sam yeah. and Emily, and for it to have this exquisite home and for we we to announce it right around uh, when when we we're showing at Seaches, it's it's a it's a great honor. Also, because I physically go on a lot of the a lot of the film fest runs and see what's going on, is that the idea that the movies that are on the circuit, that everyone in those territories can now see them like movies, like, like terrified. I think that's mm. very cool. Yeah. There's a lot of times it's like you wouldn't be able to find these things that the critics are talking about or the film fest folks are talking about, but now all the content is accessible. That's one reason why one of the, the, the Ranger to do a, such a film fest run because it's it plays to the base. It's a slasher film. It's a punk rock film, so mm. it plays to the proletariat, and therefore this sort of content or, or horror content should be in everyone's hands because I remember growing up in the 90s, and I wasn't able to get, like, David... J. Scow's books. I wasn't able to get some movies. They only existed as a legend, as images inside of Phantom of the Movie Guide or Fangoria's horror video guide, and I never thought that I would see them. So the idea that there is such immediate access to all to everything people love is very important. And um, to get back to the Candyman disc, um, you did another interview um, for that one. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, we sort of lived in the world that it was too much of a huge dream to get Cl to, to get Clive Barker mm. and my friend Anya Martin, who's a weird fiction writer. I was discussing about other other experts that we can do it on camera for the for the disc. And the, and the name Douglas Douglas Winter came up, who again, incredibly important name from my childhood of being a young monster, young horror fan growing up. And she goes, it's like, Douglas Winter, you mean the best man at my wedding? No way. This always happens yeah. to you. Yes, yes. And I and I said, is he? And he goes, like, I'll, I'll, I'll see, see you together. And I drove down to where he lived, and we had about like a two and a half hour interview, which can because he he knows Clive Barker, so it contextualizes Clive Barker during that time period. It talks about splatterpunk, sort of like the pros and cons of fitting it in there, and then sort of goes on to discuss the the movie and then the book, and sort of what. Barker is a, as as an and an entity and a fr and a friend to him, hmm. and that interview was very important because Primeval. I had to read Primeval maybe when I was like fourteen, sixteen years old, and that's also the first time I read Thomas Ligotti's work. But he was sort of the the curator curator of that book, and that may have been the first. He may have been the first person who to bring Ligotti to print hmm. in a way. So that was that was an interview that I conducted. But the entire disc, what happens when someone says it's like Heather Buckley, we need a disc, hmm. is that I go into the development phase and, and talk about it. it's like these are the interviews, these are the context of, of, of the interviews. These are sort of like if we're going to do a, a long-form piece, like there's an FX piece there, who's going to be in there, who are we going to go for, hmm. and just sort of call people up and pitch, and pitch them. And as I, I've said many times before, it's, it's like – I and all my might can create like this wonderful, you know, like like what we're gonna develop and what we're gonna do out. But if it was not for the community and the artists and people saying yes and people connecting me to other people and like DPs like driving miles out of their way to get these people's stories, 
these things would not happen. It's this great, powerful need to capture these stories and archive these stories, which make um, my, my, my work possible. It, re it really is everyone, everyone out there. That's amazing. Um, and there is one, you know, there's one moment in that, that interview where he's talking about fighting for um, gay marriage and um, it's an incredibly powerful moment, a very emotional moment. Um, can you talk a little bit about, about that, getting that sort of quote and how it felt in the room? Well, the, the question was, because sometimes I figure out sort of what, what questions lead to what, what thing. It's mm. just what is, I think, as a friend, what did he learn the most from Barker? And it was the idea of being, a, the idea of family. Mm. And that brought it into that into that phase. And he took a moment, he took a moment, and then the story that he relayed is incredibly powerful and important and so critical to get these things captured on film. Mm. That's perfect. So um, thank you so much for your time, Heather Buckley. Thank you, lovely. Nice stuff. Wasn't that good? Thanks, Dan, so. what do you have? Um, yeah, so I mentioned uh, Will, uh, my friend Will Jennings, uh, earlier, that with whom I watched the film. We were chatting about it afterwards, and I he was saying he had insight into it, coming both to it, not just as an artist, but as someone with a, a background in architecture and specifically the sort of the social aspect and the class division aspect of of architecture and housing spaces that I asked him if I'd if I could record the conversation and he said yes and so here is a little bit of that chat between myself and Will um with him bringing the knowledge about um yeah about the sort of architectural implications and the history of these these spaces um, I think it's important to think about the work of Gordon Matter-Clark, the um, architect artist from 70s New York, who physically cut buildings in half and sort of levered them apart. Old, you know, derelict buildings in sort of the, the, the industrial wastelands of New York in a, in a time when the city was run down and, and architecture was being left to be abandoned, just like the project building and all other projects which hadn't been finished and were sort of left to shells. And he, he kind of, having studied architecture and then going to France to further his art practice, he went back to America and really concentrated on this kind of post-industrial um, central urban landscape of New York where he bought old properties or he found and squashed and abandoned old ones and literally cut buildings in half and famously kind of cut uh, linear visual paths through whole shells of buildings. So when you walk through a derelict building, you can see these holes line up. And when, when the wow. camera finds these holes, which go through the mirror, then through a hole the other side, and then you can see another little hole the other side, yeah. that's definitely reminiscing of Gordon Matter Clark going on there, who practised in the 70s, and this film was made what, in the 80s, you said, late 80s? No, it's 92. 92. So, yeah, yeah I mean, but I mean, he's yeah, still basically, basically like considered places, now. Yeah. There was the sort of outline or the trace of other blocks which, which have been demolished which around gone. the ones which yeah. remained. So suggesting to me that um, this is an area which, you know, probably because they filmed that had already been abandoned or yeah. in the process of abandonment or some blocks the, have been demolished. The building that was used as Cabrini in this mm. was only demolished about three or four years ago, I think. From now um, or before the film? From, from, oh, now, so, yeah. from now. So like uh, 2016, yeah. I think. So Chicago and the, the projects in Chicago is... It's like a, a big thing in yeah. urban theory, and um, and well, it's obviously a, a shortcut choice in cinema. Yeah, and it was very much in political discourse at that period as well, and still is. When you look at things like Robin Hood Gardens in London and Haygate Estate and Cresson Gardens being demolished, about so you look at, for instance, Haygate Estate in Elephant and Castle, which was an urban forest of four five hundred trees and uh, some beautiful slab block buildings and really good community and the local authority let it decline in the same way that uh, the project there appeared to have declined and then work with developer to to kind of make a very uh, middle class or upper yeah so people had um their properties taken away from them with a compulsory purchase order were given 160 170,000 pounds for their property but given first refusal to buy new property in Elephant Park, the new project which was being built in the site of the uh, the, the, the former thing, with, with property starting at four, five, six hundred thousand yeah, pounds. No way, they're, <laughs> they're comparable. And people were moved all over the country, um, away from you know social housing tents were moved all over the country. But but the thing relating to this film being that the the 
projects which were put on top of the site, which is called Elephant Park, proudly proclaim we've planted 300 new trees here in London's biggest new green urban space, which are all private and on little pedestals that you can't publicly get to. Um, but demolishing what's fine and existing to build a sort of a, a, a version of it which uses exactly the same vernacular is a bit the same as her version of the the block of flats that she lived yeah, in, which just had like a plastic covering, she said, or something like that. Yeah, they covered the cinder block in plaster. Yeah. Yeah, and then they they moved moved it over past the uh, the L train and the and the highway. Yeah. So you know, so the same object, the same quality or the same the same sort of architectural solution can 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 give different people can be of different value and different purpose both to the individuals but also politically to the to the city. I'm also thinking of the four blocks and I can't remember their names. This is why I research things normally, which are in Bermondsey, Rotherhive. And there's four blocks, identical tower blocks, which were built in the sixties and sort of um a social housing. Um and then in the I'm going to say the late 2000s, mid-2000s, one of those blocks was sold to a private developer and all the tenants were kicked out. Um, and that's the one that was closest to the river. And that whole one then had a whole area around it which was sort of smartened up and tidied up and these flats were going for hundreds of thousands of pounds. And yet they're identical, you know, floor plan and everything, to the other three blocks which uh, still were left to rot and, you know, be very run down and... Uh, and 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 have a much lower quality of life because obviously those people are less valuable to society, but there's something there about the 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 exact same floor plan and 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 um, domestic architectural spaces, um, but but having a very sort of uncanny difference. The work of Tom Hunter is a really good photographer, a London-based photographer who went into blocks of flats before they were demolished in two thousands. And photograph like everyone's front room, and often people in their front room. Oh yeah, I think so. That's they're identical, yeah. you know, forms, the layouts, architectural but, forms. Yeah. But there's everyone's individual. It's about uh, the personal sort of, imprint. The personal imprint, exactly, and the uncanniness of how we all think we've got some sort of individual experience, and yet everyone's got their own rendering of that individual experience in the same shape or shell. Fantastic. That is what what a good episode this has been. Yeah. Even if episode. I do say so myself. And if you'd like more of that, then hit like and subscribe in order to stop us from being thrown out. You've made the me street. the happiest man alive. So. I mean, always, <laughs> always. But you know, if you want us to do more of these things, then by all means encourage Arrow to to make that happen. Uh we do like it. So um you can also follow us on social media. Dan, how do they do that for you? Uh, I am at 13fingerfx. Um, yeah, follow me. See what I'm up to. Uh, I'm going to be going away for another film soon, so there'll be stuff from an, an exciting other country. Oh, yes. Um, stay tuned for that. And uh, Instagram? Uh, same for Instagram. Uh, but also check out at Fright Night Club. Uh, obviously, we have filmed this directly after... The, uh, the Candyman episode, but there will have been some, some updates and some news out there by now. So Fantastic. And uh, as for me, you can follow me at Sam Ashurst, S-A-M-A-S-H-U-R-S-T. Um, you know, uh, Heather talked a bit about my next project on that interview. Who knows, maybe there'll be some news about that soon. Um, I'm also writing a serial killer script at the moment, so you may start to see me um, go increasingly more mad <laughs> um, because I'm reading some pretty fucking dark stuff for that. So uh, who knows how that's going to change my personality. So, you know, by all means, follow me on Twitter for that. And what's your Instagram, Sam? My Instagram is... At Sam Ashurst 23. Uh, I'm kind of moving away from Instagram, but you know, if you want to follow someone who's not going to bother you with lots of pictures, then, then there's no harm in it. Follow me there too. Um, right, dear sweet listener, uh, the revolutionaries out there, your code word for the day is <laughs> Leonard Cohen. Um, <laughs> you know what to do. Uh, right, Dan? They know what to do. They know what to do. They know what to do. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening, and we promise, promise, promise to be, to be more, more professional, professional next time. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.